Our New Testament lesson is from 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, it says verses 7 through 14, but I'm just going to do 8 through 14. I want to, uh, today we're going to have the two passages, the Hebrew scriptures, the Exodus passage and the First Timothy in conversation with each other. And um, because in many ways they're both reflecting on what's it mean to receive grace, what's it mean to be sinful, and uh, how those things work together, um, both contrary to each other, but also in concert with one another. Listen to the word of God. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, or for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And in the grace of our Lord overflowed with me in the faith and the love that are in Jesus Christ. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds that through your word proclaimed we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week I used a quote from G.K. Chesterton, uh, the journalist, essayist, uh, a great wit, if you would, very funny guy. And uh, I told you, I remind you that his story was, he died in the early 1930s. He was a journalist uh, who was an atheist, who eventually converted to Christianity and became a great apologist, if you would, for the faith. And this story is often quoted. Uh, it might be apocryphal, okay? This thing never happened, but it's one of those stories, if it didn't happen, it probably should have. And the London Times at one point sent out an inquiry to famous authors, asking them to respond to the question, what's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton responded simply, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, J.K. G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Now, we live in a time, and I'm not sure this is that different, but it certainly is um, amplified where whatever particular problem that we're looking at, it is someone else's fault. It's become very rare rare in our public life to hear someone say, you know, I was really wrong there. (laughs) I made a mistake. You know what? I had this idea before, but, you know, I've changed my mind. Matter of fact, when occasionally a politician does it now, we're shocked, right? Okay. It's gotten to that point where 
it's hard for us to admit that we're wrong. And, you know, I think it's also something that maybe gets reinforced in even the way we, in a good intention, thought the best way to raise children is to empower them, right? To give them a strong sense of self. And that's okay to a point unless that strong sense of self is at the expense of other people. We've learned tragically, for instance, that often one of the, pro- the profile of, of many of these uh, mass shooters is that not that they have bad self-images, which, right, that was what we thought maybe 40 years ago was the root cause of all that's wrong with people. You have a, we have to help people have a good self-image. But the psychological profile of many of these folks is that they have a hyper sense of self. They have no problem with their sense of self. In fact, their sense of self extends to the point where they feel that they alone are right. And so, in these two passages today, we have one of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament. One that is, in many ways, very problematic. It's a defining, it is a defining incident in the life of Israel, but it's also a remarkably problematic one. And we also have the Apostle Paul taking personal responsibility or admitting that he too at once was a uh, ferocious lawbreaker. And so what does it mean, this idea that we are sinners? What is the heart of this thing that's broken in the human race? What does it really mean to say with conviction when asked what's wrong with the world to say that I am part of the problem? Well, we begin the Hebrew scriptures, and we have to bit of the backstory. Moses is away. Uh, this is right after they've come to Mount Sinai. Okay, they've had this amazing. They've been saved from slavery. They've had the powerful experience of passing through the Red Sea. Uh, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, depending on what tradition you're looking at. Moses goes ascends to the mountain to be with God, and he's gone for forty days. And I don't know what point the people start getting nervous. I don't know if they were fine for days one, two, three, four, maybe around day ten. You know, hey, is he, you know, he's been gone a long time. A couple days later, I wonder if there's something wrong. Maybe we should go up and check on him. And so they said, do you want to go up and see what's going on with God? And no one wanted to do that. All right. So we get to week three, and someone said, I bet you he's dead. I bet you God killed him. Someone said, well, he's just old. Maybe he just, you know, maybe he's lost. By the 40th day, they're done. And they're starting to almost cause a riot. And, of course, this is the incident of the building of the golden calf. Now, why Aaron did that? There's a whole whole, uh, group of theories around that, including... The rabbis spent a lot of time trying to speculate what Aaron was up to. All right. And if you read the text carefully, it may not be a full-blown apostasy, because Aaron says, you know, he built the golden calf and says, tomorrow we will do a festival for the Lord. So maybe Aaron was just trying to buy time. Maybe Aaron was trying to compromise. I'm not sure. All right. But our text takes place on the mountain. 
And God tells Moses, your people, <laughs> suddenly they're your people, right? Okay. It's, like, it's, it's like when the kids are bad, suddenly your children, right? They're not my children, they're your children, all right? So Moses, God says, your people have committed a horrible abomination. They have rejected me. We've only been here. They've, <laughs> they've only been out of Egypt for a couple of weeks. They've already turned it back on me. Now, in all defense of the folks who are down there in the valley, I mean, this, this following God thing is kind of new for them, right? Okay, they're, still, they're still getting used to the fact that they're no longer slaves. And idolatry is really filling a void in our lives, right? What, what is idolatry? Well, it's making something more important than God. But most of us don't start out by saying, you know what? My work is going to be my God. It doesn't often, we don't consciously do that. Or my yard. My yard is my God. Whatever, I'm going to give everything I have to have the best yard. Or it's very easy, as we've talked about before, for caring for your children to kind of just slip over into idolatry, right? Most people don't purposely say, you know what? I want to become a pagan. I'm going to worship my car. Or my technology. But idolatry fills a vacuum. Whatever is not devoted to God easily becomes devoted to something else. Now, remember, the people of Israel do not have the law yet. Okay, So part of idolatry here is out of ignorance. As a matter of fact, in our Timothy passage, Paul says part of the reason he, he persecuted the faith was because he was ignorant of what was true. So sometimes we slip into idolatry because we just don't realize it. But the truth of the matter, whatever gives you the most comfort, whatever gives you hope, whatever you are living for, that highly, in a highly likely manner is your God. Jesus did not say, uh, wherever your heart is, there is your treasure. Jesus said, "Wherever your whatever your treasure is, wherever your treasure is, there is your heart." As material creatures, we're 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 very inclined to hold on to things that we can see, that we can touch, that we can control. <laughs> right? In some levels, ancient idolatry is absurd. You know, how why in the world would you worship something you built? Okay, now I know. They built it. It was a symbol of something that was supposed, an invisible uh, thing that was you couldn't see. The idol was supposed to be an image of that. But in many ways, wouldn't it be great if you could be in charge of God, right? I mean, there's a great appeal to idolatry. <laughs> you know, I just carry God around with me, and that's why we are attracted to things in this world. Why we become, you know, why, for instance, finance is such an idol. Because it gives us a semblance of control. If I can control my money, I don't really need to pray for my daily bread. Or the things that give us status, the things that give us power. All of those things are the great temptations, right? And so idolatry fills a vacuum. But the trouble, and what I was trying to get at with the kids' talk, was... Anything that you make God that isn't God is going to fail. 
Kierkegaard once said, anything that you love that you can lose cannot give you ultimate happiness. Well, what can you lose in this world? Everything, right? Nothing's permanent. That doesn't mean they're bad. It's just nothing that can be taken from us can make us ultimately happy. You know, it's interesting that the law is given to us to help us not live in ignorance. <clears throat> but sin is not only ignorance, it's also disobedience. What does Paul say? Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. <laughs> All right, now this guy was a person who took the law very seriously. But that's also, not only do we have a problem when we don't have law, we make mistakes out of ignorance, but even when we have a law, we, we bring out the other this part of sin, which is disobedience. And so the problem with humanity is that we act wrongly out of our ignorance. We're constantly trying to fill vacuums that only God can fill. And even sometimes when we have the rules, we end up being disobedient. But in this text, we don't only have a problem with with humans, but there's a kind of a God problem here. How many of you find it a little strange that God would go to the whole problem of rescuing the children of Israel, right? And about six weeks later, he's ready to wipe them out. Right? Now, There are so many problems. <laughs> there are so many problems with this text. And there are so many temptations to explain them away, but there are also so many possibilities. Now, I think throughout history, there have been folks who've actually enjoyed the idea that God will wipe out people. Okay? You know what? <laughs> I, I think there's some people that actually take great joy in the idea that God will wipe out his people. Certainly Christianity and Christians at times have had no trouble wiping out people in the name of God and country. Of course, Christianity is not the only religion that in the name of God has wiped out people. So there's something appealing, you know, to the shadow side of us and say, yep, that's what they have coming to them. Kill them all, let God sort them later. You know, that kind of attitude. Now, this is the, the explanation I got. The, the chief one I got growing up was kind of this pious apologist response. All right, It says, God doesn't really change his mind. Matter of fact, uh, Bob, your translation kind of softened the blow, but literally it says that God changed his mind. Okay. The other more favorable translation may even be worse, that God repented. Okay, so we tend to soften that language, but the language is God changed his mind, or God repented. And so pious people, they, they, don't, that, they don't have trouble. You know, God changing his mind goes against our theology. And so well, the explanation I got growing up, that God was only testing Moses. Okay, right? God wasn't really going to kill people, kill them. He just wanted to see what Moses would do. Okay. The trouble with that 
is what does that make God? It makes God a tempter. And that has a lot of problems. Now, modern biblical criticism, which is one that gives me most comfort intellectually, basically says, well, this is an ancient primitive source, and you still have kind of an undeveloped view of God. So God is still a little more capricious. The God in Exodus 32 is a little more like Zeus than the father of Jesus. Okay? So there's a sense where this is an old tradition and we can explain it away that way. Well, that may work from a scholarly perspective, but my problem with that is that, well, we still have the text, right? And the text is God's word, so we have to deal with it. I think we must avoid the temptations of explaining it away, either with modern sensitivities or with pious platitudes or with a rigid view of divine sovereignty. I think we let the words stand for themselves. Idolatry is a very serious thing. Idolatry ends up destroying people. Idolatry, if something other than God is God, that ultimately leads to the abuse of everything around them, the abuse of nature, the abuse of other human beings. And so that is a serious thing. But God also took his relationship with Moses seriously. Serious enough to listen to what Moses had to say. Exodus 32 is where Moses becomes the leader of Israel. In Exodus 32, Moses finally is willing to sacrifice himself for the love of his people. And so in that way, <laughs> the fact that God gave room for Moses to step up to the plate, that might not be such a bad explanation. And what I think is important for us to see here okay, is this dynamic nature of God. This reminds me also of the passage in Genesis where God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he decides to let Abraham, he tells Abraham about it, and he listens to Abraham. Abraham goes, it's wrong for the judge of the just to act unjustly. Moses says, it's wrong, God, for you to do this. And God listens. Now, I don't know what this ultimately means about God. And, and certainly all the other explanations could be possible. But part of what this invites us to, invites us to take prayer seriously, invites us to understand that God takes human beings very seriously, that he takes you because you are in a covenant relationship with him, because you are one of his children, it matters what you have to say to God. One of the more troubling <laughs> parables of Jesus is the one of the persistent widow. Remember, the, the widow of the, you know, because prayer is like this. There once was a widow who could neither get justice or attention from a judge. And she keeps begging the judge for her vindication. And finally, the judge says, I'm so tired of this widow, I'm going to listen to her. Now, that's Jesus' illustration of what prayer is like. Okay. <laughs> Jesus is inviting us to, or he, he's, he's recognizing that prayer sometimes feels like we're talking to the wall. When we pray to God, it feels like he's the unjust judge. He doesn't care one way or the other what's going on with us. 
And Jesus says, be like the persistent widow. Exodus tells us, be like Moses. Care enough for this world, care enough for the things in this world, that you're willing to stand toe-to-toe with God to plead for them. But there's a deeper magic involved here. And I take that phrase from C.S. Lewis. If you remember, in the first book of the Narnia Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund betrays the children and betrays Aslan. And there is a rule that stated that the white witch was entitled to kill every traitor. And if someone denied her right, then all of Narnia would be destroyed. So by right, by right, because Edmund was a traitor, he should be executed by the White Queen. But there was a deeper magic, and the deeper magic was this. That if a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's steed, the stone table would crack and death would start working backwards. Well, obviously that's a powerful metaphor, or actually it's not a metaphor, it's an analogy for what Christ did. And behind this discussion of sin and the implications of the consequence of sin is this idea of mercy. God relents. God changes his mind. God gives mercy to the people of Israel. Paul, who was a persecutor, finds the mercy of God. He says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are Christ Jesus. One of the great commentators of Exodus, one of the great rabbinical commentators, says this, that it was necessary for the people to commit idolatry at Mount Sinai because it's only when there is a hole within us, it's only when we realize that we have sinned are we open to be dependent on the mercy of God? Now, I'm not particularly interested in speculating on the necessity of sin, like our Dutch forefathers and mothers did. All right, That's not my particular interest. But what I do see in these difficult passages, the discussion of the nature of sin, the high cost of idolatry, is that in the end... Mercy wins. The people of Israel ultimately repented. Saul the persecutor persecutor becomes Paul the apostle. You and I in our own little worlds, whatever we are tempted, whatever our fates were going to be, we have said yes to the grace of God, and you and I are now agents, representatives, vessels of the mercy of God, wherever we find ourselves. That is not only good news, that is amazing news.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe.